Well, good morning. If you brought your Bibles, if you would turn them to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. I have this message is entitled, The Call to Forgiveness. The Call to Forgiveness. It was King Louis Twelfth of France who is quoted as saying, Nothing smells so sweet as the dead body of your enemy. It's kind of grotesque. Louis got it right, though. He really understood what was in the heart of man. He aptly describes the heart of every sinner. That in our heart, we love revenge. We love to get even. Just think about the last time someone cut you off on the highway. Was it that you wanted to forgive him that came to your mind, or was it something else? It's just a natural part of the sinful heart that we want to get them back. We want to make it right. They've sinned against us, they've incurred some kind of debt, and now we're going to exact a payment. And we're going to ensure that they pay back what they owe. This is something that God promises that he will do. In Deuteronomy 32, he says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. I'll take care of it, is what he's saying. They harmed you, don't worry about it, I've got it. But we don't really like that idea. Oftentimes we want to take retribution for ourselves. We want vengeance for us. This goes all the way back to the earliest humans. Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. God says, well, guess what? You're cursed now, Cain. And Cain's like, well, that's wonderful, but if you send me out there, someone's going to kill me. And so God said, don't worry about it. If anyone kills Cain, I will repay them sevenfold. Well, Cain's son, Lamech, decided that he deserved more retribution than what God was going to give. And Lamech said this in Genesis 4, 24, If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. He's going to usurp the position of God, and he himself is going to bring judgment and vengeance upon those who harm him. Isn't that the natural state of all of us? Left to our own devices, wouldn't we all say something very, very similar? Sinners long for revenge. We long to get even, to get payback, for vengeance. We like to hold a grudge. Sometimes we think it just feels good. It is the most natural thing a sinner can do. On the other hand, it is totally unnatural for one man to forgive another for one sinner to forgive another. You might say it's not only unnatural, forgiveness is supernatural. When you are forgiving, you are more like the saints of the New Testament. Remember Stephen in Acts 7, he's being stoned to death. And his last words were not, Lord, smite them. His last words were, Lord, do not hold this against them. As the rocks pummel him when you are forgiving you are also more like christ remember jesus on the cross in agony suffering the wrath of god being tormented and called names and mocked by the very people who nailed him there responded father forgive them for they do not know what they do i would love to believe that i would say something like that if i was in that situation We are called to forgive, and we are called to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Ephesians 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You want to know the standard of your forgiveness? You want to know what level of forgiveness you're supposed to give? It's the same kind of forgiveness that you receive from God in Christ. Colossians 3, verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Do you hear the blanket statements in that verse? Whoever has a complaint against anyone, forgive. No exceptions, no equivocations, no possibilities that you might be able to get around it. No, you are required to forgive. 
and you are required to forgive just as the Lord has forgiven you. This is baseline expectation for the Christian. In fact, right after Paul said, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you, in Ephesians 5.1, he says, therefore, be imitators of God. The kind of forgiveness that you are called to is far more than what you expect. This is far beyond the requirements of some human religion. This is far beyond your imagination. This is a level of forgiveness beyond what your sinful desires would have you give. It's far beyond even what the apostles thought they should give. In Matthew 18, 21 through 35, I want you to see that you are called to an extraordinary level of forgiveness. And I've broken this passage up into three parts. The first one, the instruction on forgiveness. That's in verses 21 and 22. The instruction on forgiveness. Secondly, the illustration of forgiveness. That's in verses 23 through 34. And then finally, the implications of forgiveness. The instruction, the illustration, and the implications of forgiveness. And we're just going to look at this passage one verse at a time, just go through it together and, and listen to what God says. Let's look at verse 21, the instruction on forgiveness. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. Peter asks about his brother, his brother sinning against him. That's a reference back to verse 15 when Jesus talks about church discipline. In verse 15, he says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Every true church deals with sin. A church that does not deal with sin and church discipline is not a church. It might be a cool Bible study. It might be a fellowship group. It might be a good pep talk on Sunday morning, but it's not a church. And so Jesus explains to the disciples the process of dealing with sin within the body. And Peter hears this, and his first thought is, okay, so we're supposed to discipline people, and that's to bring them back into fellowship, to restore them. But Jesus is a pretty forgiving guy. And I know I'm supposed to forgive. And so his question was, how often do I need to forgive? I can put it another way. What's my limit? When do I get to cut them off? When do I get to say, no more? You're done. When can I get some payback? Have you ever done that? And he asks, up to seven times? Is that the limit, Lord? Is it seven times? If he sins against me seven times, is that, is that the limit? And this is actually Peter being gracious, by the way. Peter's not actually being mean here. He's being gracious. Rabbinic tradition said that you had a limit of three times. After three times, you could not be forgiven. One rabbi wrote, He who begs forgiveness from his neighbor must not do so more than three times. You do so more than three times and you're cut off. You're done. No forgiveness. Another rabbi wrote, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven. The fourth time he is not forgiven. I think a lot of Christians today have picked up the Jewish rabbinic tradition. Peter says seven times, and he was probably expecting the Lord to realize how gracious he was being. He took rabbinic tradition, multiplied it by two, added one, seven times. That's grace. That's mercy. He was probably expecting Jesus to respond back to him. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. He was probably expecting some kind of commendation. And Jesus surprises him with an instruction on how he is to forgive. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. No, Peter, it's not seven times. It's 70 times seven. That Greek phrase, 70 times seven, is actually what they use in the Old Testament for the words of Lamech, 
when they translated the Old Testament into Greek. And there's faithful men who disagree on what it means. Some people hear 70 times 7, and they think 70 multiplied by 7. So the level of forgiveness is 490. Other people view it as it's 70 plus 7, and so it would be 77 times, 77 occurrences. But regardless of which one you pick, which one you choose, the number is not what's important. If you're focused on counting the number of offenses, you've missed the point of forgiveness. The point is you're not supposed to be counting. Forgiveness is supposed to be unlimited, unending. You never reach the limit. Luke 17, 4, Jesus said, And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Notice it doesn't say if he comes to you and proves and gives evidence of true repentance, then forgive him. It just says if he comes to you saying, I repent, the mere profession of repentance is enough for you to grant forgiveness. You should always be forgiving even if they come and they commit the same sin to you seven times a day. I heard someone give this illustration. I thought it was good, so I'll use it. If someone walked up to you right now and punched you in the nose, and your eyes well up with water, your nose starts bleeding, and he says, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so, I repent. I'm so sorry. Would you be able to forgive him? And if you say yes... Here's what Jesus is teaching. If he walks up to you five minutes later and punches you in the nose again, are you still willing to forgive him? And keep going. That's the point that Jesus is making here. It's unlimited forgiveness. Never-ending forgiveness. And Jesus is going to be a good preacher because he was the greatest preacher that ever lived, and he's going to prove this or he's going to demonstrate this by giving you the second point of the sermon here the illustration of forgiveness and we're going to spend most of our time here on the illustration look at verse 23 for this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves the first phrase there for this reason points back to what peter asked him the illustration is intended to answer the question that peter asked how many times should i forgive And Jesus uses this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And he's talking about those who are citizens of the future kingdom. Those who Paul says are citizens of heaven. And this is a running theme throughout the chapter. And I want to take you back to the beginning of the chapter here. Go back to uh, chapter 8, sorry, chapter 18, verse 3. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. When you are converted, you become a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. But in order to be converted, notice what he says, you must become like a child. And that's very important that we understand, because throughout the rest of the chapter, all the way up to our passage this morning, he's going to use this idea of childlike faith to explain how you are to behave and how you are to live and how you are to understand yourself and the people around you. Notice, he says, you must be dependent if you are converted by who? By God. Salvation from start to finish is a work of God. And only God can accomplish it. Joey said earlier, it's not about what you've done. It's all about the mercy of God. And you must be as dependent as a child. Those of you who are parents, how much can an infant do for themselves? You have to do everything for a child. For a baby, you have to do everything. They're the most helpless little creatures the world has ever seen. They will die without their parents. And Jesus says, when you come to salvation, you must be like a child. Helpless. And then he goes on with this illustration. You're a child, and you also need protection. Look at verse 6. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. One of these little ones who believe. He's not talking about literal children. He's talking about believers. And he says, whoever causes a believer to stumble, who who causes them to fall into sin, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. God is going to defend believers. He's going to defend his children. And this illustration just keeps running. Children fall easily. If you look at verses 7 through 9, he talks about removing stumbling blocks out of their way to ensure they don't trip and fall. Because if you've ever walked with a one or two-year-old, they're not good at navigating around obstacles. And they fall easily. And he says, you are the same way. You can fall into sin easily. Children get lost, verses 12 through 14. You know the difference between a child and an adult getting lost? The adult can find their way back on their own. A child gets lost and they're stuck. They're hopeless, completely dependent on someone to come and find them. And Jesus says, those who wander off my path, I'm going to go find them and I'm going to bring them back. Children need discipline, verses 15 through 20. We just mentioned it earlier. All children need discipline. And God says, I discipline those who are mine. And children also need forgiveness. Verses 21 through 35. When you think about forgiving, it's easy to forgive a little baby. I remember my niece when she was like one or two. We were in the car going up to Austin, and I was trying to keep her distracted, and I put one of my books in her lap, and she went to turn the page and rip. Now, if that was a 40-year-old man, we would have had words because I wasn't a believer then. But she's so cute. She's cuddly. I can't be mad at her. It's easy to forgive her. The people sitting next to you are children who easily fall and stumble. It should be easy to forgive because you easily fall and stumble. In our passage here, now he's going to talk about the king. He says there was a a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. He doesn't say who this king is. He doesn't say where he's from. He doesn't tell what kingdom he rules. He just says he's a king and he's going to settle his accounts with his slaves. We hear slaves and we think of people who are half naked in chains. That's not the idea here. This is better. The better idea here would be more of a servant. If you're serving the king, you're a servant no matter who you are. They would serve in, in high positions. They would manage his estate, his, his wealth. They would manage different functions within the kingdom. They would even manage tax collection for the kingdom. And we're not told exactly who he's calling. We're only told of one slave that he calls. That's in verse 24. Notice he says, uh, when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. He was brought to settle the account. He owed the king money, and he was to come and pay his debt. How much did he owe? 10,000 talents. This number is actually so large that some commentators have said that Matthew actually changed the words of Jesus to be hyperbolic. There's no reason to think that. The word he uses here for 10,000 is the largest Greek number. It's myrioi. If you want an English slang, you would say zillions. The dictionary says it, it means an extremely large or incalculable number. You can't estimate how big this number is. And the only way in Greek to make it any bigger is to just say it over again. Myriads and myriads and myriads. That's the only way you can get any bigger. And it's 10,000 talents. A talent was a weight of measurement. It was used for money. And you can have a talent of copper, a talent of silver, or a talent of gold. So let's keep it in context with this passage. Let's go with the gold. If you assume that you had 10,000 10, talents of gold today, the estimates are that it would be worth somewhere between a million and one trillion dollars. One commentator said it was like three billion dollars in today's value. It's a lot of money. But just to give some context, in that period, 
Roman taxes, the taxes that the Jews paid to the government of Rome from Idumea, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. The Roman government from those four areas collected 900 talents of gold. This man owes 10,000 talents. Solomon, likely the richest man in history. In 1 Kings 10, it says that Solomon received 666 talents of gold. This one man owes 10,000 talents, an unlimited amount of money. This is an extraordinary level of debt. He owes the money to the king. The king has every right to collect it. He has every right to demand that this slave pay it. And here's the problem. The the slave doesn't have the money. Look at verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment be made. This sounds kind of harsh, but in that day that was normal. If you could, in, even in the Old Testament, if you could not pay your debts, you could be sold into slavery. In fact, you could actually sell yourself into slavery and be an indentured servant, and you can actually pay off your debt that way. But here's the problem for this man. Even if he sold himself into slavery, it wouldn't cover the debt. Even if the king sells all of his possessions, and he likely had a lot. This was a high-ranking official. He had probably accumulated some wealth during his time serving the king, and yet all of his possessions are not sufficient to cover this debt. And so he is to be sold. His possessions are to be sold. His wife and his children are to be put on the auction block and sold as slaves to try to cover this debt. And the right of the king to do this is further expressed in that word, Lord. Kurios, master. He has every legal right to demand this. He has every legal right to sell him into slavery. And you say, well, wait, wait a minute. What about his wife and kids? Isn't that kind of harsh? Isn't that unfair? Well, I mean, you can make that argument. But I think it's interesting he didn't. There he is standing before the king. He owes money and he doesn't turn around to the king and say, but king, this isn't fair. You're not treating me right. What was his response? Look at verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. No argument, no defense, no excuses. He didn't even try to impugn the integrity of the king and say, well, you're just an unrighteous king, that's all. Notice Matthew says he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. You know those two terms are synonyms? They mean the exact same thing. He's emphasizing that this man hit the floor like a sack of potatoes. There was no effort to stand in front of the king. He knew he was about to receive justice. His life was over. I can't imagine if this man was laying on the ground, sobbing his eyes out, a puddle of tears collecting beneath him. His possessions that he had accrued, they are gone. His wife and children are headed for the auction block to be sold off to the highest bidder, would he ever see them again? All that he owns is about to, be, to go away. His high power, his rank, his prestige, his prominence, his wealth, all of it, gone. He's about to go from the top of the ladder down to the lowest rung on the social ladder and become a slave, bankrupt and broke. And he just falls on his face and pleads and begs Have patience with me. Patience to to hold steady, to endure provocation without complaint. Long-suffering. To endure. He's saying, King, I know I've cost you a lot. I, I know I've lost a bunch of your money, but please, delay my punishment. Don't give me what I deserve. Endure my presence just a little bit longer, and I will repay you everything. 
You know that's desperation right there, right? This guy just promised to pay back billions or trillions of dollars to a king. He knows he doesn't have the money. This is an exaggeration. He's grasping at straws. In the Greek, the emphasis of the sentence is on everything. He's promising what he can't fulfill. And isn't that just like us? We, we get into a tough situation, and the first thing we do is we start making promises to God. Desperate, hoping. The king would have known that that promise was not true. He couldn't do it. And it would have been an extraordinary grace and mercy of the king if the king would have turned to him and cut him a deal. And I bet that slave, that man was laying on the ground crying, hoping to hear something like, you know what? You pay back 10% and I'll cover, I'll forgive 90. I bet you he was hoping something like that. Or even if the king said, look, I'll garnish your wages for the rest of your life. You don't have to go to slavery. He would have accepted that. And you know something? That's exactly what false religion promises you. You do 10% and God will do 90. We'll kind of meet in the middle. I can't imagine the desperation this man must have felt. He knew the heart of men was to be sinful, to get revenge, to get what was owed to him. He had no reason to expect anything but justice. Verse 27. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. What? Forgiven? released what how it was it something i said who who convinced the king where does this come from and i just want you to think about this forgiveness that he has been granted here first notice the forgiveness is complete verse 27 he forgave him the debt the greek construction indicates that the whole debt was wiped out every penny was wiped out he was no longer responsible for any of it Flip over to verse 32. The king says, I forgave you all that debt. He didn't owe a penny. The king dismissed all of it. When you place your trust in Christ for salvation, he forgives you completely. This picture is a picture of the forgiveness given by God to you in Christ. Christ doesn't just forgive part of your sin, some of your sin, the sin that you can do some good works for. He forgives all of your sin. Matthew 9, 2, Jesus told the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. All of them. No works for you to do, no effort for you to take, no religious ceremony for you to go through. Luke 7, 47, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. All of them. No requirements, no rituals. Romans 8, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The guilt is removed, the condemnation is removed, there is no more for you to do. Christ finished it all. When you forgive, when you forgive others, do you forgive completely? Do you wipe out their entire sin, or do you hold on to some of it? I'm going to hold this for later. I'm going to remind you of what you did later. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You know, if you get in a plane and you have unlimited fuel, you can fly east And you never have to stop. You can just keep flying. And you'll always be going east. You can't do that if you fly north. Because eventually you'll have to go south. From the east to the west, it's an infinite distance between you and your sin. And because we are supposed to be imitators of God and our forgiveness, the sins of others should be taken just as far away from them. Never to be remembered against them anymore. Completely wiped out. Do you do that for others? Second, the king's forgiveness was immediate. The king didn't turn to the slave and say, well, I hear your pleas. Give me a couple days to think about it. 
Let me consider the options. Let me talk to my financial advisors. You know, we don't want the kingdom to go bankrupt. No. The servant in verse 26 pleads and begs. And in verse 27, the king forgives. I can think of a parallel. Luke 23, Jesus on the cross. The thief turns to him in verse 42 and he, he pleads, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, you will be with me this day in paradise. No thinking about it, immediately forgiven. Our forgiveness of each other should be immediate. We shouldn't hold back forgiveness. When we refuse to forgive, you know what comes out of it? Anger resentment. Paul commands us, don't stay angry. Don't stay in your anger. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. How do you resolve anger? Forgiveness. Why is it so dangerous to have anger inside of you and not forgive? Verse 27 of Ephesians 4, do not give the devil an opportunity. You open yourself up to all forms of temptation and all forms of sin. In Colossians 3, Paul actually gives a progression of sin that comes out of anger. He says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. One leads to the other. If you have an anger problem, you likely have an unforgiveness problem. Third, the king's forgiveness in Matthew 18 was undeserved. As I said earlier, the king had every right to sell the man and his family. The king could have given the man justice. The servant didn't offer any reason why he shouldn't receive justice. It was granted to him when he did not deserve it. He could not earn it. You and I have sinned against a holy and righteous God who says, I hate those who practice iniquity. You and I have broken the infinite law of God. And the forgiveness we receive in Christ is completely undeserved. Just consider how Paul speaks of of people in Ephesians 2. He says those outside of Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins, following after the course of the world, following after the prince of the power of the air, Satan. He calls those outside of Christ sons of disobedience. And just to drive the nail into the proud heart, he says, among them we too all formerly lived. And he describes us as being children of wrath, even as the rest. Children deserving the wrath of God. Consider your own sin. Consider your own unrighteousness and your own offenses to a holy God. In Romans 2, he says that those who live lives of wickedness and sinfulness, but yet go around telling other people how horrible they are, he says those people are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. If you have been forgiven by God, if you are a Christian this morning, it is only because of Christ. You did nothing to earn it. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to maintain it. Paul says, for by grace, unmerited favor, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Certainly this king here gave this man an incredible gift. Fourth, The king's forgiveness was compassionate. Not only did the servant not do anything to deserve it, it was given out of sheer compassion and mercy, literally sympathy. The king just had sympathy on the man. Verse 27, it says the king felt compassion. He looked upon this man as a parent would a wayward child, and his heart just broke for him. And he just had sympathy for the man. That's the hallmark of the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
I think of Mark 1 when the leper comes to Jesus, beseeching and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He didn't demand it. He didn't expect it. He just said, if you are willing. Verse 41, Mark says that Jesus was moved with compassion. His heart just broke for the man, and he showed this man incredible grace, and he reached out, and the cleanest man in history, the purest man in history, touched the most unclean, defiled being on earth, and he purified him in doing it. That man probably hadn't been touched in years. It was forbidden by law. Is this kind of forgiveness a hallmark of your life? of your relationships? Do you look upon your brothers and sisters? Do you look upon your spouse, even after they've hurt you, and do you feel compassion for them? Do you look upon sinners in this world as dying and heading to hell and have sympathy for them enough to tell them the gospel? Do you forgive those who hurt you? You should. That is how God forgives you. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. How could we be any less than loving and merciful? Psalm 86, 5, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Do you call upon him? Do you call upon him and ask for mercy? And then turn around and deny that same mercy to a brother or sister who needs it? This king granted this man true forgiveness. Extraordinary forgiveness. It's a model of how God has forgiven you. It's a model how he has forgiven me. And it's the model for how we are to forgive one another. Verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. Context here makes it clear that this guy left the king's presence and went looking for his fellow slave. In this context, it would be like you being saved and going out and finding another believer who sinned against you and trying to hold them accountable for it and not not forgiving them. And he goes and he finds this guy who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii. People say, well, this is a tiny little debt. It's almost insignificant. This is not an insignificant debt. A denarii was a single day's wage for a laborer. And to owe someone a hundred denarii is to mean you owe them three months of wages. That's not a small deal. And notice he, he finds this guy and he seized him and began to choke him. Literally, he grabbed him by the neck. Some historians say that in the Roman, in, in Rome, you, this was permissible, that the government allowed creditors to use that kind of force in collecting a debt. This guy had the legal right to do so, just like the king had a legal right to collect the debt. The man he was choking did owe him the money. And once again, the guy in debt doesn't make an argument. Notice verse 29. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Does this sound familiar? It's exactly what the other guy just did a few minutes ago. And he actually uses the exact same phrase, have patience with me and I will repay you. The only thing he left off was everything. You know what's interesting? He could actually pay the whole thing off. But he didn't exaggerate his promise. He, he told him the truth. I will repay you. Just be patient. Bear with me. Verse 30. But he was 
unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. What? He didn't say he's incapable. He didn't say, look, I'm going through a really financially hard time right now. I really need the money. No, he's unwilling. He just doesn't want to. He's hard-hearted. He lacks mercy. He has no compassion. He's greedy and unloving. And he takes this man and he throws him in prison until he should repay the debt. Here's my question. How does a guy in prison who's working for a day's wage pay off a debt in prison? He can't. This man has just been thrown in prison for a life. He's just got a life sentence. He's not going to get out because he can't earn the money. He's in prison. But do you know the slave who threw him in prison? He also has a life sentence. His desire for repayment will never be satisfied. He will harbor his anger and resentment toward this man for the rest of his life, and he has no way to ever get rid of it because he's unwilling to forgive. He's unwilling to forgive even so much as to let the guy out of prison so he can go get a job. Just ugly. And his fellow servants certainly noticed. You look at verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord all that had happened. This makes it clear that they went to the king and they explained it very clearly to him. They told him every little detail of what this man did, of how he left the king's presence after receiving such grace and mercy and goes and shows absolutely no mercy to another. They told him everything. Don't think that your unforgiveness will go unnoticed. Your friends will notice. Your family will notice. Your church will notice. And Christian, the world will notice. You talk about grace and mercy and love, and yet you're the most unloving, unmerciful, unforgiving person I've ever met. And they turn and they call us hypocrite. Just like with this man, everybody will notice. Verse 32, we'll do 32 and 33. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? This man's unforgiveness was an extreme, extraordinary act of wickedness. Those who have received mercy, those who have been on the receiving end of grace and mercy, should be the most merciful people. One writer said, people sense their own need for mercy, but they are not so ready to see the need to extend mercy. The king looked at the mercy he gave this first slave, and he just expected it to be shown to the next He says, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? It's just expected. You've been given so much grace and mercy. Why would you do anything different? Dear Christian, should you not also have mercy on fellow Christians in the same way God has shown you mercy? There is nothing more ugly, more wicked, more disgusting than an unforgiving Christian. It's like you spit in the face of Christ. James 2, verse 8, we read it earlier. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You go to God and you plead for mercy. You expect God to give you mercy because of the work of Christ, not because of you. And then you turn around and expect someone else to not receive mercy and you don't want to give them mercy. How horrible. If you have been given mercy, show the same. If you have been given forgiveness, forgive others. 
verse 34. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. In verse 27, the king acted with compassion and he forgave this man all the debt. What moved him was compassion. Now here he is moved by anger. This is a righteous anger. He doesn't just send him to prison. He sends him to prison with the torturers to be tormented. This man will be imprisoned until he pays back all the debt. He's got another life sentence. He's going to be in prison harboring his own anger and resentment towards the first guy. And now he's going to harbor anger and resentment towards the king too. What a miserable existence. Verse 35. My heavenly father will also do the same to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. This is the implication of forgiveness. Remember, Jesus is speaking to believers, so he's not talking about you losing salvation. It's not possible. Romans 8, 1. Or, excuse me, Romans 8. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? John 10, he said, I will not lose one. So he's not talking about believers losing salvation. So what is he saying here? He's talking about the believer's relationship with the Father. God promised that those he loves, he will discipline. And when we sin, when we go and do things that are against his law, we grieve him. And he disciplines us. The writer of Hebrews says, if you do not receive the discipline of the Father for sin, you are an illegitimate child. You're not his. This discipline appears in a cold relationship. Your prayer life dies. Your desire for the word goes away. You are overwhelmed with guilt, negative emotions, things like depression and other very unpleasant experiences. David described it as the bones which you have crushed. He said, my life juices have dried up. And so when Jesus says that the Father will do the same to you, what he is saying is, when you go at that moment seeking mercy from the Father, seeking to restore that wonderful fellowship that you love, you will not receive what you're looking for. He will not restore that relationship because you are still harboring unforgiveness and sin in your heart. If you want mercy, show mercy. Are you harboring anger or resentment? Are you refusing to forgive others? I want to end with just a few points of application here. A couple thoughts that might be helpful to you. How do you know if you're unforgiving? Four things. First, you constantly think about their sin. Isaiah 43, God said, I will remember your sins no more. It's not that God is going to forget your sins. It's that he is going to actively choose not to think about them. When you promise someone to forgive them, you are saying, I will not actively think about your sin. I won't dwell upon it. Because every time you dwell upon it, it just causes more anger. Secondly, you promise not to bring it up in conversation. It's always interesting to me how people say, well, I've forgiven that person, but yet they continually talk about the sin of that person either to them or to someone else, which is slander and gossip, by the way. If you're still having to talk about it with people and work it out by speaking to somebody, you have not forgiven. There is a caveat to that. There are some times where it's necessary for their own good. I'm thinking of like a little child who just got finished telling a lie and now they're in a situation where they might be tempted to lie again. And you say, don't do it again. But check your motives before you ever bring up a sin again. You have promised not to talk about it. Because God will not bring up your sins to you after he's forgiven you. Three, you still become angry about the sin. You know, your blood pressure goes up, your face turns into a tomato, you get really upset just thinking about what they did. 
If you're still angry about it, if you're still having negative emotions as a result of it, you have not forgiven it. Fourth, finally, you continue the relationship but intentionally cut off any opportunity for that person to ever rebuild trust. Some sins take time to rebuild. It takes time to reconcile with. But if you're going to open the door and say, yes, I want to have a relationship with you still, you can't continually build a wall and say, no, your sin prevents me from doing it. You just said you would forgive them. You need to work on rebuilding that trust and allowing them to rebuild trust with you. If you are a Christian, this describes the forgiveness God has given you. This is how you are required to forgive others. And I say all of that to say this. You can't do this. It's impossible. I said at the beginning that forgiveness is supernatural. That means you as a natural person cannot forgive the way you are commanded to. It is God who empowers It is God who gives the ability for those who have been forgiven to have the capacity for true forgiveness. Without Christ, you cannot forgive. And without Christ, you are not forgiven. If there is unforgiveness in your heart, you have sin. And the answer for everyone in this room is not, well, hey, that was a great pep talk. Let me go make myself a better person. The answer for everyone in this room is to become like a child, fall before the throne of grace, and plead with Christ that he would redeem and save you and grant you mercy, not because of who you are, but because of who he is and what he has done. Plead with Christ. Beg him to give you complete forgiveness. Beg him to give you immediate forgiveness. Right here, right now, before you leave. Beg him to show compassion to you and to give you the very thing that you do not deserve, mercy and forgiveness. And you can do that right now as we pray. Father, we are so thankful for the mercy shown to us in Christ. We're so thankful for the forgiveness granted to us undeserved forgiveness, granted to us because of Christ, because of his work on the cross. We thank you that you are loving and merciful. We thank you that you endure our sin, that you put up with us and allow us to continue living even though we fail so often. Father, you know our hearts. You know where we have unforgiveness in our hearts. You know where we have sin. Nothing is hidden from you. And we ask that you would help us to forgive others like we have been forgiven. To show mercy to others as you have shown mercy to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.